Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, local perspective on the reversal of a national travel mask mandate and NCAA Final Fours are coming to Target Center. But first, bird flu, highly pathogenic avian influenza, has again struck Minnesota's poultry producers with over 2 million birds affected so far. At a roundtable this week in Wilmer, Senator Amy Klobuchar spotlighted how tough the situation is, recalling an incident in 2015, the last time Minnesota was hit hard. A turkey farmer who is acting totally fine when the media was there, uh, the minute they left, he just burst out crying. And he said, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do in all my years of farming and uh, just killing the birds in the way we had to do it at the time we had to do it. Eminem's Bill Werner talked in depth with Minnesota Agriculture Commissioner Tom Peterson. Commissioner, let's start out with how serious is this situation compared to what it was in 2015? Because we took a bad hit on that. What, what are we looking like in 2022? Yeah, it's really shaping up to be very similar, um, but there are differences. You know, in 2015, you know, we lost over 9 million birds in the state. The University of Minnesota, I think, estimated the losses to the economy at $650 million. Minnesota being number one in turkey production, this is a, you know, it's a very serious issue. You know, we're a couple, about three weeks into this right now, um, and we're over 2 million birds. Uh, Think about it this way, though, in 2015, we really had steady cases through the end of May. So we might not even be halfway through this, Bill. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we are seeing um, the spread is a little different this year. We're not moving it farm to farm. We're moving it. It's being, you know, coming with the wild bird uh, migration and seeing it introduced that way within the barn. So we kind of see it popcorning around the state, as we say. We don't know where it's going to pop up every day, but it's uh, extremely pathogenic. Uh, so that it is a top concern. Are we in a better position, Commissioner, than we were in 2015 in terms of biosecurity? I assume we are, right? That you, you folks have devoted a lot of effort to that, and and has has have these protocols been generally adopted by turkey producers? Yeah, and I'd mentioned too. You know, this isn't just the larger commercial flocks. Sure, this is also mm-hmm. uh, backyard flocks, and so I'd say the uh, you know um, the biosecurity has improved quite a bit. In fact, the governor. Senator Smith, Senator Klobuchar, we were out in Wilmer um, and had a roundtable with the producers and companies, and that was one of the things we heard for sure that, you know, um, uh, you know, farmers are, are really seeing that. They really tighten their biosecurity controls. We're really careful on uh, moving equipment and feed trucks and veterinarians and things from farm to farm because we did see that lateral spread in 2015, so we're not seeing that. So we know that that's really improved, but also backyard uh you know, uh, two as well, really important. So that is, you know, the industry has told us we're, we're more prepared to as an agency, as a board uh, of animal health here, that is the lead agency on this uh, in, uh, you know, assigning case managers to the farms, um, depopulating the flocks quickly that need to be done. And, uh, you know, we have a, a strong incident management uh, team here at the state. And these are all very basic questions, and mm-hmm. I'm almost embarrassed to ask them, but can, can the meat be, be consumed? No, and those are great questions, Bill. Uh, you know, and so as soon as the flock is, uh, um, uh, you know, we see the mortality in the flock, uh, they, you know, farmers will call the, uh, their veterinarian, their board of animal health, 
and uh, they will start to try to um, uh, euthanize uh, the birds as humanely as possible, as soon as possible, because it is fatal to the to the whole flock. So it yeah. it spreads so quickly that once you get it established, even in a small portion of the flock, the whole flock has to be, has to be depopulated or euthanized. Correct. Correct. Yeah, boy. And so okay. that is the the prog- the standard uh, protocol, and uh, uh, and and it is the the uh, what well, the process that we try to work through to get it, uh, and that is working uh, pretty well this year, much better than 2015. Um, the meat uh, then is not able to be used uh, um, and does not enter the food chain. Uh, and so those birds are then uh, um, in Minnesota because there are water tables. We don't bury um, uh, the birds. We compost them. Mm-hmm. And so they are composted with uh, some kind of carbon source, whether that's uh, sawdust, uh, wood shavings. Uh, and the compost piles are heated up and the virus dies. Uh, within a matter of weeks, and then that compost is turned a few times and eventually put back out on uh, fields. And uh, so it's a uh, interesting process, but again, the, the, that uh, particular um, uh, uh, birds do not enter the food supply. The the, the turkey uh, and chicken and everything that is, you know, in stores and everything is totally safe to eat. You know, we always remind people to cook everything properly. Oh, sure. But it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a process that can take several weeks, and that that's, you know, hard on a farmer's bottom line too. So, if you get a, an infestation there and you have to depopulate, in other words, euthanize the entire flock, basically, how soon can the farmers get get back up? Do they have to wait uh, a certain amount of time? Uh, for the virus to uh, to die off in, in any uh, surrounding area of, of the environment there? Or, or give us a feel for that, Commissioner. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's going to be a couple of uh, uh, months. No, yeah, that long. You can repop- yeah. yeah, before you can uh, repopulate. By the time the uh, uh, birds are composted and then also the barn is cleaned out, it's almost a couple of months before uh, that happens. So yeah, it's got to be tough for farmers. It's, yeah. it's very, very tough uh, situation. Commissioner, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to ask you about the toll that this is taking on farmers and what help is available. MN's Bill Werner will be back with Minnesota Agriculture Commissioner Tom Peterson when Minnesota Matters returns. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota Electric Co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to fda.gov slash BeSafeRx. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Here's more of Bill Werner's conversation with Minnesota Agriculture Commissioner Tom Peterson. Commissioner, I want to ask you about how this is affecting farmers and farm workers. I assume not only are they uh, 
in a position where they're they're worried about the economics of it, right? And being out of operation for a couple of months and then having to buy new flocks and, and move those in and start. But just the process of euthanizing the birds, I would assume, is tough on farmers and, and on workers because of the waste and just emotionally. Um, am, am I right on that? And give us a feel for that because you have, I know, talked to a lot of farmers. Yeah, Bill, that is just, you know, um, you know, when you get that call, I had a farmer uh, two days ago that uh, um, he, uh, you know, it had been fine. In fact, he had, I've been checking in with him quite often and his farm hadn't got hit. And then that morning his, his farm got hit and it was just uh, his heart sank, you know, I think. And two, just uh, going through that, somebody myself who's raised uh, livestock and, and, you know, you, you care deeply about that it's your life's work it's your uh, income uh you know and so uh just as you said the thinking part of losing your your finances but then you have to do the physical work of actually you know euthanizing the uh the birds and seeing the uh, waste that is, of that right the waste yeah total it, waste it, well maybe not total it, i mean it's compost but yeah right, right. it's just a ter- tremendous you know stress on those uh on those producers, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we've gotten pretty efficient at it. Um, but it, it is very emotional for those, uh, farmers to go through that, uh, and the workers, you know, that, uh, as well. And so we've, we've talked to many about that. Um, so we, you know, we try to do it as quickly as possible and as humanely, we follow, uh, guidelines that are set out by the USDA, sure. uh, in, uh, euthanizing those birds, um, and try to do it as quickly and as, uh, um, uh, you know, swiftly as possible, and uh, and it, but it is extremely, extremely emotional for the for the farmers and workers. Farmers are um, tough people. I think they would have they have to be right. Uh, not only the physical stress of the work, but uh, the economics of it, and and the unknowns uh, as far as the weather um, every year. Um, I assume that, that a lot of farmers are stoic about it. They uh, push through. But um, what advice can you give to, to folks, whether either they be the people out in the fields or in, or in, the, in the farmyards or relatives or friends uh, of people, uh, and perhaps there's strain there. Can, can you give folks an idea of, of how everyone can help and then what resources are available from the state. Yeah, I think, you know, just, uh, you know, having people, uh, you know, keep those farmers and workers in their thoughts right now. It's a, again, a big industry in Minnesota, 15% of our agricultural production is, uh, some kind of poultry in Minnesota. There's over 6,000 farms that have some kind of poultry in Minnesota, whether it's a backyard flock or a larger commercial flock. Uh, there's a uh, tremendous workers, uh, uh, everything. And that is so hard. You're so right, uh, Bill, that, you know, farmers and having been one myself, uh, farmers can be isolated in the first place. And then mm-hmm. the stress with the weather, uh, with finances and everything else that this just piles on. And so we see that. And we, you know, my goal always as commissioner and, and uh, as an ag adv- ad- advocate is to keep all the farmers we have, you know, and, and sure. so that um, mental health and stress is something that, you know, I'm so um, you know, I'm glad to see in all my time and working in this that it's something that we talk about and we have resources. Our legislature has provided the department with funds to uh, have two mental health counselors to have a 
24-hour uh, hotline available to farmers. We have 10 farm advocates. So we have those resources. So we always encourage people to, you know, if you think somebody needs it, if yourself needs it, you know, to make that call. And, and don't be afraid to ask somebody twice. A lot of farmers who call me, um, you know, in tough shape, and I'll tell them about it, they, they don't make the call the first time. Sometimes yeah. they'll do it. Uh, the second time, but we also do text and uh, email different ways to uh, get a hold of that. And I, I assume, Commissioner, that's important to stress that if a, if a person feels like they need that kind of support, that there's no shame. There, 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 there can't be shame associated with it. I mean, this is a tough job that farmers have in this environment. You know, and I think that's what, you know, it's, it's people worry about, you know, and that it's a uh, a sign of weakness, but I think it's a sign of strength. And and I can tell you the farmers, um, you know, I've known too many farmers, Bill, that have made that decision to take their life. And it's, uh, um, but I've known way more farmers that have made that decision to make a call and get some help. And, uh, you know, um, and, and the relief that they have when they finally are able to um, do that is, is is helpful. So it's always something that you know, we want to promote as much as we can. Commissioner, do you have the numbers handy and the text uh, and, and, and the email? And if so, will you give those to us? I do, you know, and, and the number is one 2670 And they can email farmstress at state.mn.us. Or you can text farmstress to 898 and so those are available also on our department website, uh, and right under uh, on farm stress, right on our front page. Good and uh, mm-hmm. important piece. Good. Okay. So if, and give that give that phone number again, and then if if folks need the need the text or the email, go to the Minnesota Department of Agriculture website, and it's right there prominently. But give but let's give the phone number again, Commissioner. Yeah. Again, the number for the Minnesota Farm and Rural Helpline one eight three three six hundred. 2670. Commissioner Tom Peterson uh, with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture, thank you so much. Uh, we covered a lot of ground here, important ground, and I, I, I know we'll all keep farmers in our thoughts and our prayers, too, uh, in a tough time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity. That is Minnesota Agriculture Commissioner Tom Peterson. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Earlier this week, a federal judge struck down a national public transportation mask mandate, meaning that masks would no longer be required at airports, including MSP International Airport. I spoke with Thrifty Traveler's Kyle Potter on what kind of an impact this may have on travel. You know, it's it's been kind of funny. When when this first happened, when, you know, the U.S. District Court judge down in Florida um, struck down the, the federal mask mandate, there were, you know, a, a few hours of chaos and confusion, not knowing, you know, how the Biden administration was going to react. Would they appeal this decision and have the order stayed? Um, what would that mean for airlines and airports, you know, and the agencies that uh, ultimately it, it comes down to to enforce this? And then, you know, by, you know, the, the early evening, the Biden administration came out and said, 
we're not going to enforce this anymore, which was, you know, really the, the start of the official end of this. And so we saw, you know, videos on social media and heard from travelers who, you know, were on board planes where, you know, pilots were getting informed by their airlines mid-flight that the mask mandate was lifted. So they were coming over the overhead system with an announcement that passengers could could choose to take off their masks if they if they wanted to. So you know, it's been a mix of, you know, applause and surprise and happiness about this and some very, very understandable concern, especially among travelers who, you know, may be immunocompromised and, and felt like masks were a really essential piece of being able to travel with peace of mind, as well as, you know, um, travelers and, and people with uh, with young children who still cannot be vaccinated in the United States and, and again, feel like, masks are an important part of making sure that they can still travel comfortably. You know, I talked to folks, representatives from MSP, it sounds like they were still scrambling to remove signage and things like that. I'm wondering, uh, has most of the confusion dissipated or is that going to be something that's going to be kind of lingering around for a few days, do you think? You know, I think there will be a few days of, you know, airlines and airports crossing their eyes and dotting their T's, um, removing signage. You know, I'm curious how long it's going to take, if it's already happened even, if airlines have updated some of their safety videos to remove references to the mask mandates. That may take a little while. You know, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, it's clear right now that there's a, a big chunk of people who are traveling out there today, you know, based from what, based on what I've heard from travelers that, um, you know, a lot of people, a vast majority in many cases, are already going maskless. Um, You know, for the rest, I imagine that there's going to be, um, you know, a slow but steady return to not wearing masks for those travelers who, you know, feel comfortable eventually um, getting rid of their masks, but, you know, it's just become habit and they right now just feel more safe wearing a mask. And then there's certainly going to be, you know, a, a sizable, sizable population of travelers who are flying or, you know, traveling by train who are just going to continue to wear masks because they feel like it's the responsible thing to do. Is this decision coming right at a time when uh, air travel is increasing? And, uh, I mean, obviously they'll have to reassess it at some point, uh, depending on how cases of COVID are going. But uh, where are we with air travel right now in terms of the amount of people traveling? It's it's bumping up, is it not? We're, we're past the, the real spring break surge. So we're kind of entering another um, period where, you know, in good years and bad, it's a slower period for travel. You know, travel really, really peaked again in uh, late March into early April. And now we're kind of entering a slower period. But that said, you know, we're still, um, you know, surpassing anything that we we had seen prior to the pandemic. So travel is definitely still on that slow yet steady climb back to pre-pandemic levels, no question. Perfect. Kyle, that is what I was looking for. Is there anything else of significance that's on your radar these days that uh, listeners might be interested to know about? You know, the the big thing, you know, this is really one of two outstanding travel restrictions in the United States. Um, you know, masks have been really one of the few remaining changes um, that we've seen in air travel throughout the pandemic. And beyond that, travel is really pretty much close to pre-pandemic normal. 
Um, but the only this this really shines a spotlight on the single remaining travel restriction um, that I can think of in the United States, which is if you leave the country, you still need a negative COVID test no more than one day before you get on a plane back to the United States. That has not changed. Um, and I'm really curious to see what this mask mandate removal means for that. Um, does it put more pressure on the Biden administration to remove that requirement sooner rather than later? Or does it bolster their case that, you know, it makes sense, at least for now, to keep that testing requirement in place because masks are no longer a measure that they can rely upon to keep, uh, you know, a possible increase in COVID cases at bay? Uh, That's a good question, Kyle, and one that I probably will follow up with you on once there's movement on that. So uh, otherwise, thanks so much for the valuable information. I can't thank you enough for it. Yeah, anytime, Scott. It's worth noting that after this interview was conducted, the Justice Department made a decision to appeal the judge's ruling overturning the federal mask mandate. So we'll keep you posted on that. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Unexpected reactions to smart financial decisions brought to you by FeedThePig.org. Well, I finally did it. I opened a 401k. So you're giving up. Just like that. Giving up on what? On getting an inheritance from a distant relative. Don't you think if there were a billionaire in the family, we'd know about it by now? Listen to me. We are one phone call away from riding horses on our own private polo grounds. One call from christening yachts, having a butler, using summer as a verb. How do you figure? Look, everyone's got a rich uncle somewhere. It's statistics. So the best thing you can do is just prepare for the inevitable. Right. Which is why I thought maybe it would be smart to take control of my finances. You know, start using a budget, get out of debt, set some retirement goals. Budgets? Debt? You watch your mouth. Retirement shouldn't be a goal for us. It should be a way of life. When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Basketball fans in Minnesota had to be thrilled to hear that three more marquee events will be coming to the Twin Cities over the next two years. Just three weeks removed from hosting a sold-out college women's basketball Final Four, Minneapolis was given hosting duties for the 2023-24 Big Ten Women's Basketball Tournaments and the 2024 Big Ten Men's Basketball Tournament. The Target Center will host all three events. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Minnesota Sports and Events Senior Vice President Matt Munier about the news. It was definitely a long uh, bid process, very competitive with other cities trying to secure these Big Ten uh, basketball tournaments. So we were very excited that uh, it was finally able to be announced publicly uh, from the Big Ten. Uh, and Commissioner Kevin Warren. Uh, so that was fantastic news to to really celebrate and build off the momentum we have created coming off of Women's Final Four was a massive, massive success for Minneapolis and, and our state, quite honestly, and, and getting positive media exposure. I mean, there was a New York Times article about Minnesota's having its moment. We're a mecca of women's basketball. I mean, those types of media uh, plays, you, you can't put a price tag on that positive coverage. So 
Um, it's great to continue the momentum, especially with women's basketball. As you know, Mike, our community supports women's events in a way that nobody else does around the country, I think. And particularly in the youth girls basketball side, we have the highest participation rate in the country. So when we host these big time women's basketball events, it's a fantastic opportunity for locals to come and see these superstars really in the women's basketball world. And, and so we're just really grateful for the opportunity you know, to host these events for the first time in Minnesota. So I have to ask, did you guys know maybe before the Final Four or was the Big Ten waiting to see just how well um, you guys would do in terms of the host city and then say, yeah, this is what we want to do? I mean, did the Final Four have an impact on, on what the Big Ten chose? Yeah, I think it definitely had an impact. I mean, our city really showed out in a really positive way from the branding and the signage all around downtown, the airport. I mean, our friends at MSB Airport did a fantastic job with the team uh, rivals, and we had a, a fantastic welcome experience for all four teams that came to town. And then, of course, you know, showing that our locals really came out and supported some of the free ancillary events like the Fan Fest over at the Minneapolis Convention Center. We had the highest attendance uh, for that event since 2015 for the NCAA. So things like that and having, of course, sellout crowds both nights demonstrated to the Big Ten, which, by the way, we had a few of them here to see the Final Four, Women's Final Four in person, which was great. So is there any early returns on what the Final Four meant and any projections to what these three events in terms of the Big Ten tournament might mean? Yeah, great question. So we're actually uh, working with a local uh, CSL, a, a company to conduct an economic impact study on the women's final four. Now that we have the actuals and the numbers that we can plug into. So hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll have some really concrete data to share and report, but you know, the early returns are incredibly positive in terms of the impact on the hotel community uh, across the region. We saw significant jumps in occupancy and average daily rate with our hotel partners who of course they've really been hurting coming off of the pandemic and and everything that our community has gone through so a big time events like these are so meaningful now coming out of that everyone has a greater appreciation of what these events mean for the downtown area and the hospitality community so it's going to be a very positive positive thing with all the visitors that came to town with the women's final four and then for the Big Ten tournament, you know, I know Indianapolis reported estimated economic impact around $15 million when they hosted the women's and the men's if they combined those two together. It's going to mean a lot of visitors coming to our region, you know, particularly what we like about the Big Ten tournaments, all 14 teams from the Big Ten conference right. get to participate. So rather than just having four teams into town, each tournament represents 14 different fan bases and it's going to be tournament central. I mean, over five days at Target Center, there's going to be 13 games played and we're going to crown a Big Ten champion. Uh, and of course, as you know, Mike, the Big Ten is maybe the best conference in college basketball, both on the men's and women's side, especially top to bottom. We're really uh, we really love the, the quality of the teams in the Big Ten conference. So. Uh, it's going to be just a really festive atmosphere for all three tournaments with so many games uh, being played here. And there's going to be a lot of really exciting players and coaches coming to town. So we can't wait to host these events. I mean, as early as next year. That's a senior vice president of Minnesota sports and events, Matt Munier with MNN sports director, Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening and please tune in again next week for Minnesota matters on this MNN station.